You're listening to the GP Supervision Australia podcast, Dementia Demystified, a model for the practice team to learn together. Presented by Peter Silberberg and Hilton Copy. We would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this recording was produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present, future and their families. My name's Hilton Copley. I'm a GP on living on Bunjalung land in northern New South Wales, Lennox Head, and part of the Dementia Training Australia GP education team that I've been involved with for the last 10 or 12 years. Pete, would you like to say hi from Bunjalung land as well? I would, yes. So we're very happy to be here and thanks for coming along to have a chat about dementia. I just wanted to acknowledge the clever people who put the initial program together and it's a very heavily evidence-based program. So we hope it'll be helpful for you. So what we're going to offer is an overview of the frameworks that we've developed over the last number of years to help GPs and primary care teams to be better equipped to assess, recognise, diagnose and initiate management of people living with dementia. We're going to focus initially on the assessment and diagnosis And it's something that we hope will be of interest for you as clinicians, but we're also very much going to frame it in terms of how you might use this in your teaching with registrars within your practice. And really, I think the key difference for the session over some of the other ones that we do is it's about how can we learn in a practice team about dementia? And that's very much going to be our focus for the session. And we're going to use these frameworks that we've developed that kind of in a way demystify this complex collection of conditions that we call dementia into these frameworks. And we're going to focus quite strongly on the domains framework, the stages framework, and the inclusion and exclusion criteria framework to guide you in the process of assessing someone who may have dementia. Dementia is more than a memory problem. We're going to re-emphasise that many times. It is a condition that affects all parts of the brain and many parts of cognition. The second point is that the cognitive assessment tools you're probably familiar with using, such as the mini mental state examination, are useful to assist you in making a diagnosis, but they're not screening tools and they're not diagnostic in themselves. And the last thing that we really want to try and improve your capacity and confidence in doing individually and as a team is that we believe it's the person's GP who is ideally placed to diagnose and manage dementia with appropriate support. And there are supports that we'll run through as we go through this. We've developed a podcast called Dementia in Practice. So there's a lot of stuff to learn about dementia. We can't possibly do it even in an hour and a quarter. So if we've piqued your interest a little bit and you'd like some more information, Dementia in Practice, wherever you get your podcasts. Pete, why do we talk about a trigger warning at the start of this session? Yeah, thanks, Hilton. So people would be aware of trigger warnings for other things that I hear on the radio, on the TV, perhaps around domestic violence, perhaps around mental health and suicide. And we felt it was a good idea to put a trigger warning in when we're going to talk about dementia. And that's because not for everyone, but for some people, it can sometimes raise some memories. It can be challenging. We know that it's a very prevalent illness There's many people living with dementia and a lot of people will have had family or close friends who have been affected by it. And so sometimes that can trigger some challenging memories. And if you 
need to walk away or you need to have a break, then please do. Yeah, my father died from dementia and so did his brother. So it's something that's kind of very close to my heart. Now we talk about how common are the dementias, not dementia. And we'll explain a little bit about that, why we talk about dementias rather than just dementia. And it kind of highlights that language is actually really important. And you'll notice us using some phrases as we go along, like, we talk about the person living with dementia rather than a dementia patient or definitely not a demented patient. So we're quite careful about the language. And this comes very much from the dementia advocates. They don't like to be thought of as either demented or necessarily suffering and very much a person-centered approach. So we'll focus as much as we can on using the appropriate language. So Pete, how common are the dementias and why do we think it's important for people to be aware of this and also for registrars to be aware of it? They're very common. And at the moment, we're talking about all the dementias. So most people would know or heard the words Alzheimer's dementia. But when you're thinking about all the dementias, as you get older, they become more prevalent. I don't know about you, but when you reflect on your own practice, when someone walks in the room to me, I automatically have things going in the back of my mind, depending on how old that person is. Obviously, a child is different to someone who's middle-aged, who's different to elderly. And I often do over 75-year-old health assessments as well. So there's a bit of a bracket there going on in my practice that's just been made happening, like I'm sure some of you are. And I also work in the Aboriginal Health Service, so I do annual health checks too. So there's all different reasons why people come into your practice and the age is going to tell you something before they actually walk in the room. And I think some people, and certainly my patients, are quite surprised when you let them know that the statistics, so over 65 to 75, it's 3%. The next decade is three times that, which is about 10%. And then the next decade over that's 30%. So in the over 85-year-old population, that's almost one in three, which in my mind is quite a high number. And then people living under the age of 65 who have dementia, we call that younger onset dementia. It's far less common, but it does occur. So we like talking about dementia because it has a huge impact on the community. It's the leading cause of death in women in Australia, and it's the second most common cause of death in all people in Australia. It's also the leading cause of disease burden in people over the age of 65. And we know from our experience of doing this with hundreds and hundreds of GPs now that many GPs feel they haven't received much education about dementia and don't feel very confident in their ability to assess and diagnose, even though it's very common. And it also has a massive impact on carers. So we're trying to reduce this mismatch of the prevalence of it with the degree of education that we've received. And probably your registrars will be in a very similar situation as probably not having had much training in dementia. The other thing that happens for registrars is that often they don't see that many older patients. So they may not even be seeing them that much during their time with you. So that's something you might want to think about in your practice and the way the registrars get exposure to older people. And Hilton also, just thinking about that point too, is that it's very true, isn't it? That people have different exposures and experience to dementia. So a GP supervisor who's been doing it for 20, 30 years, whose cohort of patients is likely to be a little bit older, he might be looking after patients in nursing home, their experience and exposure 
will probably not be insignificant. Whereas, like you say, a registrar who's getting their own new patients may not have seen in general practice, but some of the new registrars have done terms in, you know, in hospital that would have given them exposure too. And so everyone's exposure is different. And so we want to learn off each other. And But what we have recognised, like you say, just to emphasise, is this concept of GPs making the diagnosis is not something that's really been taught through, at least in my experience and my understanding currently through medical school, I'm happy to be corrected if we're wrong. And so, you know, this is something we're really strong about and passionate about in, at DTA, that we want to provide people, GPs, with the capacity and the confidence to start making the diagnosis with assistance. And part of that capacity increasing is to actually understand what dementia is. So, Pete, what is dementia? So that's a good question. So when you're talking about the word just dementia, so we're not talking about Alzheimer's dementia yet, you're talking about a syndrome, a collection of symptoms, which when all put together presents as a progressive illness, so it gets worse over time. It's global, so it affects multiple parts of the brain and affects everyone in different ways, obviously, because everyone's brain is different and we all function in different ways. This condition is also because it's progressive and we don't have any cure for it at this stage, it's life-limiting. and so. Eventually, it is very common to die from dementia due to the loss of the functions of the brain, such as swallowing and physical activity like walking and, and these kinds of things. As you said, Pete, dementia is not one condition. It's really an umbrella term that covers a whole range of conditions. In Australia, the commonest form of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. And the next most common is a vascular dementia. And together, they probably make up around 80 or even more, 80% of the cases that we'll see in general practice. And there's often an overlap with a combined vascular and Alzheimer's dementia. But there are other dementias that you may see from time to time. Probably the next most common is a Lewy body dementia. And the important thing to know about a Lewy body dementia is that visual hallucinations are a very strong feature of a Lewy body dementia. And when I went to medical school, the treatment for disturbing visual hallucinations was antipsychotic medication. Unfortunately, if you give someone with a Lewy body dementia antipsychotic medications, you can make them very sick and trigger very severe extra pyramidal side effects. So I think it's really important for all of us here, plus any registrars that you're talking with, that if you see an older person with a new onset of disturbing visual hallucinations, be very careful about reaching for the prescription pad before there's been a full assessment looking for a possible Lewy body dementia. And then there are frontotemporal and a whole range of other conditions that can lead to a dementia, including Parkinson's disease. Yeah, which is often associated with Lewy body. And that's a great description, Hilton. And, and just to reemphasize that as we now move forward, we're now focusing on Alzheimer's disease or mixed Alzheimer's vascular dementia. Yeah, that's going to be the focus for the rest of the time. And to help make the concepts around Alzheimer's and vascular dementia a little easier to understand this thing about breaking something complex down into its component parts. We've developed this thing called the domains framework. And Pete, can you run us through the five domains? And The domains framework may look familiar to you. So if you're thinking about anyone with a chronic illness, we're always thinking about sort of the whole person or holistic kind of approach. 
hopefully recognise this kind of framework. So the first one is around cognitive decline. And the messages that we want to emphasise with you is around the short-term memory loss, which is a gradual onset, which gets worse over time. So that is separate to someone who has a sudden onset of memory loss where you might be thinking perhaps they started a new drug or perhaps they have a delirium for another cause. So that's an important distinction. And the other thing about cognitive decline is that it's not just memory loss. If you remember the take-home messages, the dementia is not just short-term memory loss, it's also other parts of cognition. And when we do the inclusion criteria, we'll go over how to look for them. But the sort of things that you're going to explore on your history with your patient is things around things like attention, concentration, so the ability to carry out tasks, insight is a really important one, and judgment, two important things that you're going to need to carry out daily tasks as dementia progresses. Things like driving would be the main one to ever think about later. So the next thing is function which kind of moves into something like driving. So we've got the gradual onset short-term memory loss with some other form of cognitive decline. And then the next one is that you need to have a loss of function. So you need to, through your history taking, and this is going to be with the person in front of you, but also really importantly, you get a collateral history. So you're going to be taking this from a carer or a family member, whoever else is appropriate who knows this person sitting in front of you. And you're going to be exploring concepts of loss of function. And that might be things like complexity of cooking, the ability to remember pin numbers, the ability to keep using the computer or their phone. And again, you're looking for a change over time. These things can be subtle. They're not always straightforward. It can take a bit of time to tease these things out, but that's a really important part of the diagnosis. So you do have to tick that box. The next domain is around psychiatric symptoms. The thing to think about here is that psychiatric symptoms can be part of the dementia itself. So as part of the illness process, the disease process, you can develop, as Hilton said, hallucinations or delusions. And so we'll start with them. And there seems to be a pattern, a particular pattern. And it doesn't always happen this way, but people may get very paranoid around their money and who's taking their money. Is my family stealing my money? And also around fidelity. So they might think their partner's having an affair or something strange like that. And those symptoms are obviously pretty distressing for both the carer and potentially the person living with dementia. So it's important to keep an open mind to that possibility. And then you can, through the dementia itself, you can develop a depression or an anxiety. There's the three things around the psychiatric illness symptoms in the domains framework. As Pete mentioned, they can be part of the illness they can be in response to the illness. So someone early on with insight may become depressed or anxious as a result of their decline in cognition and functioning. But it can also pre-exist an episode of depression. And not all people read the textbooks and only get one disease at a time. So someone may have a pre-existing depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and go on to develop uh, dementia. And in fact, people with schizophrenia have an increased prevalence of dementia. So it can be quite complex, and that's where getting some support might be helpful. 
I'm sure those of you who work in aged care will be aware of the changes in behaviour that can occur towards the latter stages of a person's dementia. But in the early stages, which is where we're encouraging you all to start thinking about it, sometimes we might see some apathy or withdrawal. The person might have some slight change in their personality in that regard, and just to be aware of those sort of things. And then finally, the fifth domain is the physical decline. And that usually occurs in the later stages. And it's where people lose their mobility, might become impaired, and then ultimately they can have difficulty in swallowing, lose bladder and bowel control. And it's this physical decline that is what ultimately makes a dementia a terminal condition. So five domains that we're really encouraging you to think about when you're talking with your registrars about dementia or when people are coming to see you and trying to tease it out. I know for you, Pete, when we first started doing this work, it took a little while to ingrain it into clinical practice. So what have you done to help make it easier for you to remember these five domains? I've just done something very easy for myself and created a shortcut as a Word document that you can easily copy and paste into your practice software. That's what I've done. And it works really well. (laughs) There's too much for me to remember. Like I'm pretty good at it now because I teach it and I'm doing it more often. But when I first started doing it, it was a lot of information for me to have to remember. It's not very difficult. It's just, it was just the quantity, you know, bringing that up with a person sitting in front of you and being relaxed and doing it like you would normally taking a cardiac history, which you've done hundreds of times. So that's been really helpful for me. I just hit a button, it pops up on my computer and I can easily sit there and go through it with the patient and then I can add and, and subtract from my shortcut as I go along. So it's a shortcut in the medical record in best practice. Yeah. yeah. Great initiative, Pete. So we've had the domains framework. Now the next one is the stages framework. And you'll all be aware of stages frameworks that were used in many different conditions, slightly different in dementia in that the stages are very fluid and there's no definite cutoff from stage one to stage two and then stage two to stage three. It's kind of fluid and quite nuanced, but it can be helpful to think about these stages when we're both assessing a person and importantly, as we may talk about next time, instituting management because the goals of care at each stage are slightly different. We've used stage one, stage two, and stage three, rather than mild, moderate, or severe. And this is part of that choosing our words carefully, because we believe that there's nothing mild about a diagnosis of dementia. So calling it mild is not truly a reflection of what it means. So we talk about stage one, stage two, and stage three. Stage one, it's earlier, the person's still more likely to be at home. During stage two, things are getting a little bit more difficult in terms of their care needs, and they may well be needing to, them and the family, thinking about transitioning to 24-hour care. That's when the cognition and the parallel decline in functioning gets worse, and that's often when the behaviour changes start to occur. And then in stage three, which is the latter stages, it's where there's really diminishing quality of life and those physical changes start to kick in. There's this gradual decline in cognition that's paralleled by a decline in function. 
as we mentioned, psychiatric changes can come and go and there's a variety of manifestations. So similarly with behaviour, there can be some apathy or withdrawal at the start, which again can fluctuate. But as the dementia progresses into stage two and stage three, that's where there's a peak in the behaviour change. And then as the physical decline increases, drop off in the behaviour changes, the person's no longer able to move around. So the wandering, sometimes they become nonverbal, so the calling out can diminish. The interface between stage two and stage three, that's very difficult time for the person with dementia and their family and carers. And so that's why we're so keen to equip GPs to be able to make the diagnosis further back in stage one so that there's this opportunity to help families and the person involved to plan for what will become a more challenging time as the person goes from stage two to stage three. What might happen in the phases before the classic features that we've just described of an Alzheimer's dementia become present to you as the clinician and the family when they're seeing you. So a way to try and understand that is have a think about diabetes. We all know that there's a test to help make the diagnosis of diabetes. We're all using a hemoglobin A1C over six and a half. We've got a diagnosis, but we now know that there's this prodromal phase or impaired glucose tolerance or pre-diabetes, whatever we want to call it, that leads up to the cutoff that makes the diagnosis. The same thing is with Alzheimer's dementia we understand now that there's a prodromal phase where people are going to start having very subtle changes in their cognition and potentially function. It's not enough to fulfil the full criteria to make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but you're still in this prodromal phase. Now, we certainly don't want to confuse people. And I wish one of the things that would be really great in Alzheimer's if we had a test like a hemoglobin O1C where we knew exactly where that cutoff line is, but that doesn't exist yet. There are lots of people trying to work out what that test might look like, whether it's a blood test or an X-ray, a combination of two. But right now, that's in the realm of research. So we need to be expert clinicians at trying to figure this out. And the main reason why we're saying this is you just need to be aware about this prodromal phase. It's got a name. It's called mild cognitive impairment. We could probably do a whole session about mild cognitive impairment or MCI, but of course we won't. We just really want to bring you up to date about that term, be aware that it's around and think about it as a potential prodromal phase of an Alzheimer's dementia. The last point I'll make is that not all mild cognitive impairment ends in an Alzheimer's dementia. And sometimes, you know, you might have a memory impairment from starting a new medication and then it reverses. Or sometimes it's very mild and it stays mild for years and years and years and years and they don't develop all the other features of an Alzheimer's dementia. So not all mild cognitive impairment ends in an Alzheimer's. People would know that, as Hilton was saying, like if you had a Lewy body dementia, that tends to be faster and people tend to progress into later stages of the illness more quickly. So zero to 10 years, that's a very rough calculation. And of course, it depends on the person and all sorts of factors, but it's a rough estimate of a classic sort of Alzheimer's dementia progression. Yeah, it's like if there ever is a standard Alzheimer's, which there never is, of course, because everyone is different, roughly from the beginning of really the functional decline, I think, that's where zero point should be in around 10 years. So there was a question, is the prodrome the start of cognitive decline? And it is for some people, but not for everyone. So for some people, this prodromal mild cognitive impairment 
does not result in the development of a dementia, but it is slightly different to the normal aging process where people's cognition may slow down a bit. And as Pete said, we could spend a whole session trying to tease out the nuances of the differences, but it's really just to raise the awareness of it. And the main reason for raising the awareness, it's not theoretical. A lot of the things that we're going to talk about during the management phase, if they are done earlier in midlife, then it may slow down the development of cognitive impairment and may even slow down the beginning of a dementia or even delay it to the point where the person dies before they get it. So it doesn't come out. I hesitate to use the word prevent it entirely because I don't know if I can really say that, but it can definitely slow it down. And someone has mentioned that it's difficult when the carer or patient is in denial. Such a good point, Hilton. And of course, where's denial coming from? Is denial part of the potential illness that's sitting in front of you? Or is denial personality-based or part of fear? That can be very challenging. And the way I personally deal with that is just to keep acknowledging it and to gently explore with the person and the carer where they want to go forward next. Because everyone's different. One of our big pushes within our team is to bring the concept of brain health checks into general practice like we do heart health checks. And part of the reason for doing that is, as I said, to institute some changes in midlife, but also to try and reduce the stigma around dementia so that there hopefully will be less denial and a greater willingness for people to speak about it. That's a mission that's got a big goal over a long period of time, but this is part of it. And just depending on how we go, we might be able to share some of our thoughts about brain health checks. But let's move on for now, Pete. We've alluded to a little bit about the benefits of making a timely diagnosis, which is really what we talk about a diagnosis in stage one. What are some of the benefits that you've seen when making the diagnosis earlier? Most of the time when people come and see me and they're saying, Pete, I'm worried about my memory, I'm worried about dad or mum's memory, they're very anxious to know what's going on. And Alzheimer's dementia is always the one that they're worried about. And they just they want to know an answer. And so you know, one of the main benefits is giving people some clarity about what is happening. Or if I'm not sure what's going on and I've done my assessment, you know, referring and getting a specialist opinion. But in terms of making the diagnosis in my room, giving the gift of the diagnosis and the certainty to the carers and the patient is really important. And then, like you've said, Hilton, if we can give the diagnosis in the early stages of the illness where capacity and insight and denial is not there, then you have the opportunity for this person to, you know, make decisions that have meaning to them as well, such as their will and their advanced care planning and those kind of things. And then the last thing, I mean, we never stop giving people education, but it does offer the ability to provide education in the earlier stages and to really set those things up to try and keep that person safe and at home, which is what most people want for as long as they can. And although there's no curative treatment for dementia at this point, there are many, many interventions, most of which are bread and butter general practice uh, interventions that can slow the progression. And we'll definitely be focusing on them next time so that you can feel confident that if a diagnosis of dementia is made 
in stage one, there are many, many things that we can do as GPs to help the person to reduce their symptoms and to slow the potential progression of the dementia. Pete, you've alluded to tests for dementia and there not really being any diagnostic tests available yet. So how the hell do we diagnose it? Well, we go back to first principles, which is we take a bloody good history (laughs) and we make sure we get a collateral history. If the person in front of you, by definition, has dementia, then by definition, they have problems with their memory. And so getting a history from them is not always going to be very reliable. So you need to get history from the patient and a collateral history from a care or a loved one and then proceed to your examination and investigations, which at this stage, now this may change in two or three years' time, but at this stage is to exclude other potential reasons why that person may be having some issues with their cognition. And we're going to go through the examination and investigations shortly, but before we do that, we're going to talk about the next framework, which really helps to frame how we take a history from someone with dementia. And when you're doing this work with your registrars, I think you will find this a really helpful way of guiding them in how they might take a history from someone with the dementia. So we call this the four inclusion criteria. And Pete, would you like to guide us through? I know you've already spoken about some of these, but how do we tease it out on history? What sort of questions do we ask to help elucidate these four inclusion criteria? Yeah, sure. So Remember we talked about the domains. So someone might walk in the room and say, Pete, I'm worried about my memory. So that might be a good place to start, right? I open up my domain shortcut and I start going through that. And as I'm going through that, I'm starting to see whether these inclusion criteria exist. So for memory, I might say something like, do you have any concerns about your memory? Or is memory something you're worried about? Or has anyone told you that they're worried about your memory? Or are your family concerned about your memory? Something along those lines. And then... Do you feel like there's been a change in over time? And that's the one where you really need the collateral history because inevitably I find the person, if they have dementia, is very poor at giving me that story (laughs) that it's gotten worse over time. And really, you know, you get a very different version between the person potentially living with dementia and the carer themselves. So that's where the collateral history is really important. And then moving into failure and function. So once I've explored the cognition aspects, I talk about how things are going at home. What do you like to do? What are your hobbies? have things changed over time again you have to get this history of progression and things changing over time because it's a progressive illness so do they used to garden but they're not gardening anymore they used to cook complex dinner parties for lots of people and they're only doing simple meals now do they used to do all the banking but they've handed that over to their partner all those kind of questions need to be teased out and you need to try and work out why i mean sometimes there's good reasons that doesn't involve dementia why people have potentially lost function in their life so you need to spend a bit of time exploring that and then the last one is you need to have some other sort of form of cortical cortical dysfunction beyond memory just before we go on to the cortical dysfunction because it's really important the question that i like to ask is thinking back to how things were six or 12 months ago what have you noticed that might have changed? So when relating to both memory, but also functioning. So if you're thinking, you know, they say they like gardening, thinking back to six or 12 months ago, 
what were you doing in your garden then compared to what you're doing now? So really giving them a time frame of six to 12 months, because the key thing here is that it's a gradual onset and it's getting worse. So the good news is if you're like me and you always struggle to remember people's names or find where your keys are, that's always been like that. Like that's not a gradual onset and it's not getting any worse. So this is where we tease it out. So the questions that you ask around history is very important and kind of open-ended questions with a time frame is really helpful. And someone mentioned getting lost in the shopping centre or car park. That's what happened to my father. He parked the car and he couldn't find the car. And so, yeah, that's a failure of function, whereas that had never occurred before. It just reminded me there, see, I forget that's why it's good having it there is, you know, the use of tools. Classically, you might see someone who, mobile phones, you can ask about, although some elderly people have never functioned the use of a mobile phone. So you need to be a bit conscious about that. But, you know, things like using a remote control for a TV, they would have been doing for decades. So that's a good one to ask about. So can you explain these mysterious things that we don't really think about too much? Oh, I never thought about with dementia, these cortical dysfunctions, which are really an example of how the other parts of the brain are affected apart from just the memory part. I'm sure that you and I learnt this when we were in medical school doing our neurology term, but <laughs> if you don't use it, you lose it, don't you? So I've forgotten this too and had to retrain myself, but it's not very hard. And we're going to demonstrate that to you now. And the other thing that Hilton and I were reflecting on earlier today is you really have to inquire. It doesn't generally present to you inside the room like someone walking in breathless or with an atalgic gait. You have to really ask for it. So dysphasia is an issue with fluency or an impairment of language fluency. Now, if someone's had a stroke and they have an expressive dysphasia, that is something that we all kind of know. But again, that's something that happens very suddenly. And the dysphasia is often much more subtler than that. So one way of teasing that out is you can get the patient to ask you to name as many animals as they can over a period of time. So Hilton and I are going to demonstrate to you for that right now. So I might say to Hilton, Hilton, in a second, I'm going to ask you to name as many animals as you can over about 30 seconds. And Hilton's going to demonstrate to me what someone who might be living with dementia might respond to. So Hilton, can you go ahead and just name as many animals that's just come into your head? Just say them out to me aloud. So the animals that are in my head, you want me to say the animals that are in my head? Just think of an animal and say it out loud and keep going for as long as you can. Okay. Um, dog, cow, um, bird. Is, is bird an animal? Am I allowed to say bird? You can say bird. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we'll stop there. So you can see there... There's not a lot of fluency, there's some pausing, and sometimes if the carer is sitting next to the person, they may even do what we call the head turn sign, where they turn their head and they ask their carer to help them. So just to show you what the normal looks like, so Hilton, I'll get you to demonstrate normal now, I'm going to put you on the spot to test your language fluency. <laughs> While I'm typing a question and answer as well, like multitasking. Yep. So yeah, dog, cat, bird, rabbit, guinea pig, Zebra, lion, tiger, cheetah, giraffe, elephant, rhinoceros, Great. cow. Yeah, you can stop yeah. now. Great. Well done. You've done really well. So you can see that there's not a lot of pausing. And also what people tend to do is they need, tend to group their animals. So initially he started with sort of domesticated animals. 
and then there might be a pause and they think about all the animals in the jungle and their paws and all the animals in the ocean and that's very normal. It's a good idea to have a practice of this with your colleague or your family just so you can really see what variations of normal look like. And actually, Pete, the recommendation is to do it for a minute and the cutoff is about 12. So with that clustering and the fluency. So if someone's coming up with less than 12 and they're not getting the clustering, you'll get a sense the more you do it. And and in our practice, the nurses would do it as part of when they were doing mini mental screening and they would write it down on the page that had the clock face test, which we'll talk about in a minute. So looking for fluency and 12. And speaking of fluency, we better be fluent in moving forward. Yeah, no worries. Would you want to do agnosia? Yeah, so agnosia is naming a person or object and we're all used to pen, watch and something else. Some people in stage one will not have any trouble with that. But the one that I like to do is to show them my stethoscope and say, what's this called? And often people with an agnosia might say, oh, you know what it is. It's that thing that you use for listening to my heart. And I say, yes, but what's it called? What's its name? And they go, you know what it is. So they can describe what it does, but they can't name it. That's an agnosia. And then the dyspraxia. Pete, can you show us how you brushed your teeth today, please? You'll have to lift your hands up. Yep, that's it. So grasping the object, squeezing on the toothpaste. Thank you. Very nice. And if you had dementia, something they know it's kind of around the teeth or the hair, but not demonstrating the use of an object. So they're the three cortical dysfunctions we're looking for. People often ask, do you need all four inclusion criteria? Yes, you need all four inclusion, but just one cortical dysfunction. And Usually it'll be a dysphagia or an agnosia in the earlier stages. And as Pete said, if you don't look for it, you won't find it. So they're the four inclusion criteria. You forgot my favourite test. So I just have to quickly mention it. I don't know if it's strictly a dyspraxia, but doing the clock face test is really useful. And probably a lot of you have done that. It's part of a GP cog assessment and some of the other cognitive assessment tools. But you basically draw a circle on a page and hand it to the patient and say, can you please put all the numbers of the clock face and then give them a time like quarter to show you can you put the hour and the minute hand and that's also a really good test to assess cognitive function yeah and attention it, it yeah. assesses a whole range of things we'll talk about that a bit when we do the cognitive assessment tools yeah. so pete do you want to go through the exclusion oh yeah that's right so we've got the four inclusion now you have to have the three exclusions so delirium is number one which is a sudden onset change in cognition and there's a whole lot of different reasons why that might occur and you should be able to pick that on your history because it's a sudden onset and it's a very sudden change for the patient and the family. The other one is there's organic causes um, and there's multitudes of them and we're going to go through the tests you can do to rule them out. One of the really important organic causes not to miss is medications or drinking alcohol, depending on the age, smoking drugs, those kind of things. And then the last one we mentioned earlier was around psychiatric illness. So someone who has developed a severe depression may show many of the symptoms of dementia, but it may not be dementia, it may be depression. If you think about the symptoms, they may be withdrawing, they may be uh, very apathetic and not functioning the same, they may have very short attention span and not remembering things. So the key thing about the exclusion criteria is that you can't make a new diagnosis in the presence 
of the three exclusion criteria. And what needs to happen is that you treat them, whatever you discover, fine, you treat as best as possible and then reassess for inclusion criteria. And I could not say that enough. If you identify a delirium or a person has a delirium, you treat that as best as possible, wait for a maybe three or four months and then reassess for the inclusion criteria. A delirium does not mean the person has a dementia, but it means they're at increased risk of dementia because they've probably got reduced cognitive reserve. So remember I said medications as part of the exclusion criteria. So there are many lists online and you might have your own helpful specific list that you save, you know, on your desktop. The obvious ones not to miss is obviously things that already have anticholinergic side effects, which we know affect cognition, you know, like amitriptyline or the antispasmodic drugs for bladder and alcohol and painkillers because they're important not to miss. And then there's this concept, which is about cognitive loading. So that means that many, many different medications might have a 1%, 2% or 5% effect on cognition. And when you have five or six tablets all together and you multiply five by five, you suddenly got a 25% effect on cognition and then that can affect the patient's cognition. So two important principles there. What are the drugs and how many of them actually have anticholinergic loading and might be adding on top of each other? So we just had a question, Pete, about assessing people either who have English not as their first language or are really highly intelligent and that can mask things. So I think the principles about taking the history still remain the same. The Naming the animals test is just one way of assessing for a dyspraxia. It's not a diagnostic test for dementia. It's one of the ways of assessing a dyspraxia. We're going to move on to talk about the cognitive assessment tools in a minute. And when we do that, we'll talk a little bit about people who come from non-English speaking backgrounds. So we're going to come to that in a minute. Pete, Let's go on to the next one. So you examine your patients, do you? Occasionally. (laughs) Yes, I do examine my patients. And the one that I'm really focused on, particularly in my elderly patients, is the weight. Not only because there's some significant reasons for weight loss, but weight can be a surrogate marker for someone who is becoming withdrawn and not interested and therefore not eating enough. And malnutrition is a common issue in the elderly, as, as people know. But all those other parts of the examination are also important. Yeah. Okay. And the cognitive assessment tools, they used to be called cognitive screening tests. Some people still do, but we're on a mission. There's a range of cognitive assessment tools. Most of you will be familiar with the mini mental because that's embedded in the practice software. Pete and I are both big fans of the GPCOG, which was developed in Australia. It includes some questions to the person and as well uh, collateral history. And it also includes the clock face drawing test, which, as Peter's mentioned, is a good assessment of cognition, attention, and praxia, the ability to draw. For people who come from non English speaking backgrounds, the RUDAS is specifically designed for people from non-English speaking backgrounds or for people with low levels of literacy. It's more a story type of assessment. And if you haven't ever used it and you do teaching sessions with your registrar, maybe you would like to just run through it 
with your registrar because it's particularly useful for people of non-English speaking background. For Indigenous Australians, the Kika has been developed and there is a remote and urban one. I'd just like to acknowledge that some of this stuff can obviously be pretty challenging in different populations in Australia. And you know, I work in Aboriginal Medical Service. We're, we're currently going through the process of trying to work out how to all to do this in Lismore, which is a fairly sort of, I guess it's rural, but, you know, coastal town. Some of you are from the Northern Territory, you know, it's different wherever you work. You might be working in city areas with more ethnic populations, but you do have to try and find one that's suitable for that population that you feel comfortable with. I think the other thing to note there is that the score or the outcome of a cognitive assessment tool was not part of the inclusion and exclusion criteria. These tools, they're not diagnostic, which means you can have a normal score but still have an Alzheimer's dementia. You can have an abnormal score and still be normal. So you have to be careful with the interpretation. And they're not screening tools, so which means that if you do it, they're not recommended to do on a population level. That's just not why they're designed and they don't necessarily give you good outcomes. But what they are useful in, and I do use them, and I think they are useful, is assisting in making you with a diagnosis. So when I'm looking at someone and I've taken my history, I'm thinking, wow, this looks, I'm pretty confident this is Alzheimer's dementia. And then I do a cognitive assessment tool and they're scoring in the lower ranges. That's reassuring for me. And if they get a very high score, then I might think again about what's going on. They're also useful for tracking a person over time. So we do them routinely with our over 75-year-old health assessments. I know that's a form of screening and not exactly what I just said would be the use, but nevertheless, that's what we're doing in our practice. And that can be useful over time. And, and I've got patients where that's been very helpful. But they're particularly good when the patient is walking in the room and said, I've got a concern about my cognition. And that's really what they're made for. And someone is already presenting with some sort of cognitive symptom. Yeah. And there are other tools that can be used that we might talk about in the next session with regard to brain health checks. There was a question, is acute delirium more likely to occur in patients with dementia? The answer is yes, because of their reduced cognitive reserve. And it also, in that prodromal stage, that might be the first way they present is with a delirium, which is why a delirium is a red flag and the person needs to be marked for recall to be reassessed for the four inclusion criteria three to six months after the delirium to clarify one of the most important points. So history, examination, investigation. investigation. And so th these investigations, as we said earlier, there is no diagnostic test. So why are we doing investigations? Well, we're doing them to exclude other potential causes for this person's cognitive impairment and change in function. So Again, it's part of your shortcuts. A bit about the imaging. So a CT brain without contrast is still accepted as an appropriate baseline imaging to rule out other reasons why that person may have changes in cognition and function, such as a chronic subdural hematoma or some sort of cancer of the brain or something like that, raising your cranial pressure or whatever you're thinking. In terms of access to specialist scans like amyloid PET scans and FDG, PET scans and these kind of things that still are currently either via research or via specialists who are ordering them. So, but as GPs, that is still what we're recommending. And then depending on the population and who's in front of you and what you're thinking, you may want to order some other things too. Yeah. The goal is if you identify something, if you identify an underactive thyroid, treat as best as possible and then reassess for the four inclusion criteria.
So a question about homocysteine. No, it's not routinely recommended. It's not on any of the guidelines, although I know that some of the memory clinics do ask for it. It's not baseline recommended. Something popped up about do you use fasting blood tests? Look, I mean, I use my clinical judgment. If I, I mean, I can do a hemoglobin A1C, which is not fasting, as a screening tool for diabetes, which is very useful. Yeah. I'm not particularly worried about a fasting cholesterol in an 80-year-old person because I know that at that stage, starting cholesterol medication is not going to make any difference. So just use your clinical judgment. So the investigations all come up at the end of the GP COG. Once you go through the GP COG, list of investigations are there just in case you don't get the email. So the question was here, how soon after treatment of an abnormal result do you reassess for the inclusion criteria? It depends on what's being treated. So if it's thyroid function, it would be, I guess, once the thyroid function returns to normal, a few weeks after that, if it's a delirium, three to six months, that's longer because it does take longer for the function to return to normal. Let's move on to the summary now. How long does it take to make a diagnosis? Often people ask this question and, you know, how do you do this in clinical practice? And the answer is that it takes often multiple visits. And I often combine it with maybe a health assessment, maybe with a GP management plan review, which, you know, is helpful in terms of being able to get a bit more MBS billing with times. But often it's a multiple step process. Like any sort of diagnosis of chronic disease, you might take one or two visits to get a history. And during that, you're asking a person to have some investigations. They come back and get the results. You may complete some of the history taking then. And so it's quite normal and acceptable if you're making a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia for it to take a few weeks, sometimes even a month or so. The collateral history is vital. We've talked about that. Of course, what walks in your room, the stage of the person through their disease progress and where they walk in the room is going to make a big difference to the presentation. So I had some great grey nomads who were travelling and I've never seen before and they walked in the room and the carer was doing an amazing job and her husband had uh, what we'd call stage two dementia and I, I wouldn't let him drive home. He was that bad. That doesn't happen very often for me, but it really just depends on the level of where they're at. And then the last point, many of the management strategies can be started immediately. So just to have a hint, just think about what you're already doing in elderly people. You know, you're thinking about falls risk, you're thinking about hearing, you're thinking about vision, you're thinking about, you know, muscle mass, diet, all those kind of things are going to make a difference. Just as I do for heart health, heart health is brain health with a couple of extra things tossed in. So take home messages, which are the same ones at the start dementia is more than a memory problem. The cognitive assessment tools are not diagnostic nor screening. And that we hope now that you will find that you're better equipped to make an assessment. So the question about which cognitive assessment tool do you find the most useful from a monitoring, it depends on the person. Like everything, if the person is from a non-English speaking background, the RUDAS, if they're really highly educated, the MMSE is not as good, it's not as sensitive because people get artificially high scores. So maybe something like the GP COG because it includes the collateral history or the MOCA, which is a little bit more involved can be useful. But the other thing is history, 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 and then 
use the cognitive assessment tool that you feel comfortable with. There was a question around referral to a geriatrician for cholinesterase inhibitors. It's not essential, but GPs can prescribe in consultation with a specialist, so that can be by phone call. Well, thanks, Carla, and all the team there. And yeah, look forward to seeing you all next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'd love your feedback. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and or a review. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast with your colleagues. If you'd like to ask a question or suggest a topic, you can reach out to us via our social channels. Simply search GP Supervision Australia on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter. GP Supervision Australia is supported by funding from the Australian Government under the Australian General Practice Training Programme.